Hello, I'm Alexander. Welcome to the latest edition of Shout, the podcast for South Yorkshire Fire and Rescue. This series is all about shining a light on fire service staff who've done amazing, life-saving things. Although I'm speaking to individual members of staff, all of the people I talk to are always part of a bigger emergency team. I was a bit concerned it was going to become hypothermic. It was very cold. Um, it couldn't stop shivering. Uh, it got what turned out to be quite a serious injury. So obviously shivering weren't really helping that either because the more I shivered, the more it hurt. In this episode, I talked to Gary Devonport, an instructor at the Fire Services Training and Development Centre. He tells me about an extraordinary set of circumstances which led to him helping to rescue a man from water in Wales. I asked him about what happened, what it feels like to save a life, his career before the fire service, and why he thinks it's important to pass on his skills to others. We'd gone and bought Maris on a four-day flood boat operator's course, so it was five of us, I think. Five of us, but it was four of us having breakfast that particular morning. We stayed in a hotel, but overlooked the R&I centre on the sort of the... The, the pier of the front if you want at, at Beaumaris um, and we're sat in at breakfast having the usual chat and ironically we were just chatting about how many times you stumble across incidents by accident whether that's out on fire engine you know in, in doing community work or or <clears throat> if that's just you know out and about yourself or you just seem to stumble across stuff just we kind of said this and uh, one of the lads was just waiting for his breakfast to come I saw somebody run past window in a dry suit and I did a little bit of a double take. I thought, somebody run past window in a dry suit. And then so I said, I'm sure I've seen somebody run past window in a dry suit. And a bit of, bit of banter flying about like that had been seeing things. And then the lady who was bringing his, uh, his breakfast over comes over and says, oh, uh, she'd obviously overheard what we were talking about. She went, oh, yeah, we, we think someone's jumped off at Menai and Bridges. And I was like, all right. And so she like walked away a bit. There was a bit of a pause. It's like, well, you know, we've got a van full of kit outside, you know, because we brought us... <clears throat> There's training vans, so there's reach poles and there's throw bags, there's technical gear, there's, you know, dry suits, all that type of stuff. And it's just packed out front. So we should really go and, go and have a look. Like, and this was the morning of us course, we've not even started the course yet, we'd literally got there the night before. Um, so we went out uh, expecting potentially to find somebody deceased after jumping off a bridge. Um, I could see a bit of a commotion about 150 metres away or something. What I didn't really realise at the time was... We're all dressed in civic clothes because it was a civilian course, so we weren't in uniform. So this was like a water rescue training course. You go to yeah. Wales to yeah. To so we go to an outside provider, and they provide us the training. So, um, so we we open the van up, grab the trauma pack out, you know, as a, a starter for ten, like, and and sort of I tailed it across. One of the lads jumped in the van and brought the van across. Uh, so we go over and there was like two council workers, sort of leaning over the edge and sort of to. To give you an idea of what it looked like, the, the pier at Beaumaris had like a footpath across the front of it where people to walk the dogs and stuff. And then just sort of off that was, the best way to describe them, like half moon shaped concrete sort of blocks, if you like. Yeah. Basically just designed so that the waves don't crash against the front and damage it. So as we ran over, there's obviously, I could just see one of the workers with what looked like a throw bag, sort of over the edge. And a woman stood there with a dog. So obviously we, we runs over kind of thing and there's a couple of guys from the RNLI had already sort of got there. They were the ones that we'd seen run past in the in the dry suits when we got there. Uh, we found this gent, sort of half in, half out of water, uh, shivering quite a lot, uh, in quite a lot of pain. And and somebody kind of crudely tied a throw bag around him to just secure him so he didn't float away into water a little bit. So 
we kind of came over, got you know, got us as Trompack, and for a bit we kind of took a little bit of a backseat. We were kind of like, oh, you know, they are in a lie, like a little bit of the experts at this, and and we'll leave them to it. And there's two other guys there, kind of helping out a little bit. And it became a little bit of like um, too many chiefs and not enough Indians. There was a lot about shall we do this, shall we do that, shall we do the other. So a couple of us kind of like jumped in and said, well, as a start, let's get that throw bag off him because it's not really helping him now. He's in a lot of pain, clearly, as we were letting us know. And he's got basically a knot tied around his arms that are basically making him uncomfortable. Um, so we, we kind of climbed over, undid it, um, got down and then came up with a bit of a plan of how we were going to basically get him out. There was a lot of disco, oh, we're going to have to do this, that and then. And ultimately it was like three quarters of the way into water which is freezing cold can't remember what time of year it was but it weren't particularly warm that's for sure and basically the longer he stayed it weren't doing him any good whatsoever mm. yeah he's going to be in some pain when we move him but it's better to move him than sort of leave him there so um, a stretcher appeared from somewhere I can't remember if it was ours it possibly might have been ours but I can't remember I think it was ours um, so working with RLI and these two two guys we came up with a plan of getting him out of the water we knew that he weren't going to be particularly happy with the fact we were moving him uh, just by having a little guess at these injuries. They were complaining of his hip hurting and his leg. Um, managed to get a little bit of information off him. He was like, he's in his 70s. He was, he was holidaying in Beaumaris. He was actually from um, the sort of Stoke area. Uh, so we got him onto the stretcher, um, wrapped him up a little bit in foil blankets and whatever we could find just to try and keep him warm. And then... A couple of guys uh, from RNLI and a few of our guys just proceeded in carrying him back to the RNLI boathouse, which were you know just maybe 200 metres away, on the basically out front of our hotel. So uh, we walked back. In the meantime, one of the lads took the gentleman's wife and the dog to collect her car, so nipped around in sort of in the van to collect a car. Got into the lifeboat um, house, took him into the drying room where we assumed it'd be warmer in the drying room, if you like. So obviously he was. I was a bit concerned he was going to be able to become hypothermic. He was very cold. Um, he couldn't stop shivering. Uh, he got what turned out to be quite a serious injury. So obviously shivering weren't really helping that either because the more he shivered, the more it hurt. So uh, a little bit of a debate ensued about whether we were going to take his clothes off or not. Um, I think some some guys were were contesting that we should take them off, but we kind of over, overruled a little bit and said, no, he needs to take them off. Because essentially he's wearing a big coat that's wet through. So essentially he's wearing a wet duvet and he's mm. already cold uh, and he was shivering uncontrollably. So I had a little chat with him and said, look, we're going to take your clothes off. We've got a couple of options. We're going to either cut them off or we can gently take them off and not for best kind of thing. So we sat him up, um, managed to get his jacket off him uh, and uh, he had like a quilted shirt on. He was insistent we didn't cut his quilted shirt. I think it was his favourite. So we unbuttoned it, uh, got it out of him. Um, we, did, we decided to leave his jeans on just because obviously... It was a bit of concern he might have damaged his pelvis and potentially the belt he was wearing might have been providing a bit of support to his pelvis so we didn't want to take his jeans off until the paramedics arrived in case we started messing with sort of his pelvic area so we left his jeans on uh, got his top half his clothes off wrapped him back up again got um, there was some like woolly bears hung up in the drying room wrapped him in a foil blanket got him wrapped up and then just started asking him a few questions um, you know how, how old he was was he normally fit and well all that type of stuff but um he told us he had like triple heart bypass surgery like six months before, so that rang alarm bells as well. Like obviously he's had his heart repaired and he's hypothermic um, potentially. Uh, and then by this point it became a like a full scale 
multi-agency response, the police turned up, mountain rescue turned up, ambulance turned up, heart team turned up. It was literally everybody and the man and the dog uh, tipped up. Um, so we're in the drying room, in barrels of, you know, the paramedic kind of thing. Um, I think I ended up handing the sort of the casualty over, explaining what we knew about him and what we, con you know, considered potentially were wrong with him and that type of stuff. While having a bit of a chat with him as well, you know, trying to keep him calm and stuff. Um, get him a bit of oxygen, get him wrapped up, and then basically just worked with paramedics. They, they eventually cut his jeans off, got him wrapped up in like a bit of a space blankety type thing, uh, zipped him up. And then, yeah, loaded him away to away in ambulance. And it was only when he'd gone away in ambulance that we realised the other two guys who'd helped us with rescue were actually his instructors off the course. Um, so it was like, is that the course over then? Like final exercise finish kind of thing. Uh, so we had a bit of a bit of a laugh and a joke with them guys. And um, this is going, you know, go finish your breakfast. We'll meet in sort of 45 minutes. So went back over. Uh, rather funnily, one of the lads' breakfast had been cleared away. So he missed his breakfast. He'd literally only just got it, but they'd cleared it thinking we weren't coming back. And, and yeah, so... Um, sort of packed up the van and, and carried on with the, had a little chat with the RNLI guys, they invited us over one of the evenings just to have a look around and have a chat with them and stuff, so um, went back, had breakfast and started, started the course, and nipped obviously the RNLI one of the nights and then one of the other nights we were sat eating sort of evening meal if you like and sort of having a couple of beers and discussing what we've been doing through the day and um, a, a woman appeared and says, uh, looking for a load of Yorkshiremen and we were like, you might have found them. And she was like, oh, and it turned out to be the gents involved wife. And she told us that he'd uh, broke sort of the top of his femur and fractured his pelvis. Um, so he was, he was awaiting sort of emergency, not emergency surgery, but awaiting surgery to put that right. Uh, she offered us to buy a drink. We declined um, politely. Had a bit of a group photo with her and dog and a friend. Um, and yeah, that was it. And then sort of got up a couple of days later and it had kind of gone a bit global. It made North Wales press and... Yeah, and stuff like that, but rather funnily, we weren't mentioned in any of it because they just thought we were four random blokes who, who kind of ran over because we're all in civic clothing. Like, um, so yeah, yeah, that was that was kind of it, really. Um, just one of them, so well, right time, right place, I suppose, but just stumbled across it. So you, you've obviously st stumbled across something completely random there, and you were yeah, you're obviously on a training course, but you're effectively off duty. Yeah. Um, do you ever feel off duty, or if you see stuff happening, do you always feel like you want to respond or help? I think you've got. Yeah, I think everybody who's in the fire service joins the fire service because they want to help people. So you naturally gravitate towards wanting to help people, whether that's somebody who's fallen over in the street, something that you might come across in your day-to-day -day life. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't think you're ever really off duty, to particularly. Um, obviously, you are in one respect, but you know, at the end of the day, we've got the skills to potentially help people and you know being just being a good person really helping people that's what we kind of do anyway um so yeah just yeah help out wherever you can really you mentioned the skills and obviously um people associate firefighting with firefighting yeah. maybe a bit of um road traffic collision stuff um water rescue is sort of slightly different isn't it yeah so the four, there were four, there were six of us on the course. Four from training department and two from out in district. So the four from training department, we were all swift water rescue instructors. We'd all done pre-hospital trauma life support. So we had quite a varied 
skill set between the four of us and the two guys off station who had also done IEC and had been at water rescue stations for some time. So yeah, we you know we were quite well equipped to sort of deal with it in a in a roundabout way. Although it was a bit different because we like sea, which obviously being landlocked in South Yorkshire, we don't really deal with sea. Um, but yeah, so. Yeah, we got we kind of got the skills that we knew we could help out a little bit, and not particularly just the skill, but we had loads of kit on van that you potentially could help out with, you know, or two cylinder defibrillator, a full trauma pack, you know, a van to move things around, you know, everything mm. you can imagine, PPE for us. Um, so yeah, it would just, just been better if we could at least just lend the kit as opposed to his own skills, but ended up using both really. So obviously it was really nice outcome that you you know the wife came back, she she could update you on what had happened. Having dealt with something like that, albeit I recognise it's obviously a team effort, um, how do you feel afterwards? Um, obviously, pleased that we could help him and it turned out to be a, a nice ending because it was only a couple of days later when we were nipping up and down the Menine Strait, which is obviously where it is, that realised that actually if it had got washed off the bit of concrete it was in, it would have been in, in a real problem. Um, the water flows quite a bit, it's tidal through there, so you know, if he'd not been secured by the council workers in the first place and actually slipped into the water, it would have been a completely different outcome, I would imagine, particularly with the level of injuries that he got. Uh, so yeah, no, just good that, you know, a good outcome for him, got to where he needed to be, got the surgery, and I should assume he made a full recovery, but obviously we're not to know, not to know that bit, but yeah. And do you ever take a moment either as an individual or as a team to think, I did a really good job there? Um, yeah, probably, but without overtly saying it. You know, you probably look back a little bit and think, would we have done anything any different? I think there was a bit of a conversation about, you know, would we have done that any differently or should we have done that or should we have done the other? But, you know, it's, it's nature of beast in our job that you, know, you can always look back and think, I would have done that differently or, or the other differently. But, yeah, um, it's, it's the first time in my career that I've ever known anybody come back and sort of thank you. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, I tell like it's happened once before, but generally for us, once we've done an incident and away the casualty goes, that, that's the last you really ever hear of it, so... Mm. Is it the kind of thing you imagined you'd be doing when you joined the fire service? Um, yeah, I'd probably say it was, yeah. Um, I think you have a maybe a idea of what you think you're getting yourself into uh, when you first join. In relation to does that match up with sort of reality versus expectation? Yeah, I'd say it does. Um, in a slightly different way, you know. Uh, I think people have a perspective that firefighters are running outside of burning buildings and dragging people out and looking all heroic when in reality it's not really that a lot of times you get involved in like big incidents and don't really get the how big they are until afterwards mm. when you know it's all about news or whatever um, that's when you sort of get a grasp on it when you're there you know you've got a job to do uh, you know you're doing the bit that you're, you're trained to do and it, it kind of passes you by a little bit about what you're actually dealing with it's, it's only normally after where you take stock and get home and whatever else that you start thinking about what's what you've actually just done mm. at times yeah and so you were you had a career in the army before joining yeah. the fire service. Um, how do those two careers compare? Um, different in one respect, but same in the other. So I finished my military career and I went and worked uh, in the prison service when I first left, um, and it was nothing like the army whatsoever, uh, not even close. And then the fire service recruited, so I applied and I got in, and yeah, it's, it's quite close in terms of. Um, camaraderie, team working, that type of stuff, um, sort of the banter, um, the, f the family feel sometimes, you know, shifts you work on, you close, like shifts I've worked on it past, you know, godparents to my kids, 
been to their weddings, they've been to my wedding, yeah, that type of stuff. Um, so yeah, quite close in that respect. Um, but also, so you're working in your local community, so different in kind of that respect as well, if that makes any sense. But um, yeah, I'd say they're quite similar, but they've got some marked differences as well, I would imagine. Yeah. You mentioned the kind of camaraderie and banter and the family feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you come across an incident like the one you've just described, do you think that helps? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the four guys from the training department and the two guys on station, I've known them all for you know, 10 plus years. And you kind of just, you feel free to be able to talk, talk to each other, sort of how you like, you're, you're on a similar wavelength, do you know what I mean? It's not like you're, you know, talking to complete strangers, you kind of know how each other work to an extent. You know, some people are naturally going to step forward and try and take charge a little bit. And the kind of everybody kind of fits into their own sort of style, if you like. But yeah, it makes loads of difference that you know, obviously knowing the people. And, the benefit from that comes that we're all firefighters, you've all worked on a station, you've all rode a fire engine before, you all kind of, you mm. kind of know how these incidents are going to run a little bit, you know, you, the, the, you're kind of comfortable in that scenario because you've had experience of it before. Um, it's only really when you first start to join where you feel like a bit like a, like a fish out of water where you're thinking, what, do I, what am I supposed to be doing? And you're like kind of looking around to be directed, but you know, once you've been at fire service a few years and you've worked in that environment and that team before, kind of things come naturally a little bit to what you need to do to achieve it kind of thing little 30 second conversation about where it will do this and everybody works towards the same goal because we've got the same training so yeah and in your role now as an instructor um and having worked for the fire service for a few years do you feel a responsibility to pass on some of those skills yeah definitely um you know as a i think everybody who comes into training department you know want to pass on the skills that we get taught as well but as much as that, we learn from crews as well. We learn from people who come through training department, you know. We're not riding fire engines at the minute or anymore. So, you know, we're a little bit out of touch with reality as in what happens, you know, on a day-to-day role. So we pick bits up off them and, you know, we learn things from them and we look at what we're teaching and we adapt the way we teach things to react to what's happening in reality. Uh, but yeah, definitely, you know, certainly when we get like recruits in who are coming in off the street and having never been near a fire engine or, you know, you've got a responsibility to pass the experience that you've got or the knowledge that you've got onto them to give them the opportunity to have that career when they, you know, when they get through the course and start on that journey. A big thank you to Gary for sharing his story with me. It was fascinating hearing about how an ordinary morning so quickly turned into a dramatic life-saving rescue. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and share the series with people you know. Thank you for listening and please tune in again next week.